Section 21 of Religious Studies, Sketches, and Poems. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Recording by Lois Beachy Yoder, Charlotte, North Carolina. Religious Studies, Sketches, and Poems by Harriet Beecher Stowe Section 21 Judas It is one of the mysteries in the life of our Lord that he was led by the immediate direction of the Father to incorporate into his little family and to bring into the closest personal relations with himself an unsympathetic and adverse element that must have been a source of continual pain to him it was after a whole night spent in prayer for the divine direction that the first twelve apostles were chosen and judas also was one of them the history of this man is a wonder and a warning that there could possibly be a human being who could have such advantages could rise to such a height of spiritual power and joy and yet in the end prove to be utterly without any true spiritual life seems fearful it would appear that judas had at first a sort of worldly enthusiasm for christ and his kingdom that he received the divine gift of miracle working that he went forth preaching and healing and felt all the exaltation and joy which the sense of spiritual power and influence gives judas was among those who returned from the first missionary tour in triumph saying lord even the devils were subject unto us the grave answer of jesus reminded them that it was of far more importance to be really accepted of god as true christians than to have the most brilliant gifts and powers in our lord's first sermon on the mount which may be considered as an ordaining charge to his apostles he had said to them that in the great final day of judgment there would be many who would say unto him, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Everywhere in the New Testament these miraculous powers are spoken of as something of far less value than the true Christian spirit. And if we may trust the word of our Master, many had them whom he will never acknowledge for his own. But the warning fell on the ear of Judas unheeded. Perhaps he did not himself know how selfish and self-seeking was his zeal for the coming kingdom. Generally speaking, the first person deceived by a man who plays a false part is himself. Judas appears not to have excited the suspicions of the little company of brethren. His shrewdness and tact in managing financial matters led them to appoint him the treasurer of the common family purse. Without doubt, what he saw of the enthusiastic love which Jesus excited, the ease with which he could make people willing to lay their fortunes at his feet, opened to his view dazzling golden visions. He saw himself treasurer of a kingdom unequaled in splendor and riches, when all the kingdoms of the world should be subject to his master. It was more than the reign of Solomon when gold was to be as the stones of the street. 
If we notice our Lord's teachings delivered in the hearing of Judas, we must be struck with the explicit and forcible manner in which he constantly pointed out the danger of the worldly spirit which was growing upon that disciple. How solemn the picture of the rich man, absorbed in plans and calculations how to bestow his great wealth, until God says to him, Thou fool, this night shall thy soul be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be that thou hast provided? So, he adds, is every one that layeth up riches, and is not rich towards God. Again he tells them that it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. He asks them, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? We hear nothing of any replies that Judas makes to these teachings. He seldom is represented dramatically. Peter, James, John, and Thomas all present themselves vividly to our mind by the things that they say. But Judas is silent. The master, who knew him so well, did not expose him to the others. He did not lessen their brotherly regard or interrupt the peace of his little family by any effort at expulsion. As his father had chosen this member to be in intimate nearness to himself, Jesus accepted him, bore with him, loved him, and treated him to the last with the same unvarying sweetness that he showed to the more congenial natures. It is affecting to remember that the very act by which Christ was betrayed was one that showed that all the external habits of affection remained still unbroken between him and the traitor. The kiss of Jesus was sincere. He loved this wretched man as heavenly beings love, and followed him with love to the last. It would seem that towards the last part of the life of Jesus, the moral antagonism between himself and Judas grew more pronounced and intense. As the spiritual life of Jesus waxed brighter and stronger, so much the more vivid became the contrast between it and the worldly aims of the traitor. Judas saw the kind of worldly prosperity to which he had aspired receding. He saw that Jesus, instead of using his splendid miraculous powers to draw towards him the chiefs of his nation, was becoming every day more in antagonism with them. Instead of meeting the popular desire to make him a king, he had drawn back from it, and by that very act lost many followers. His extreme spiritual teachings had disgusted many of his disciples and led them to go back and walk no more with him. And now the talk of Jesus was more and more of persecutions and sufferings and death as lying just before him. To a worldly eye all this looked like a fanatical throwing away of the very brightest opportunity for fame and fortune and dominion that ever was given to a leader. Judas became sullenly discontented, not yet ready openly to throw off all hopes of what might be got by adhering to his master, but yet in a critical and fault-finding spirit surveying all his actions. It is an awful thought that it was possible for a man to share the daily bread of Jesus, to be in his family, treated as a beloved child, to hear all his beautiful words, to listen to his prayers day after day, and yet, instead of melting, to grow colder and harder, 
to grow more earthly as his master grew more heavenly, and to find this want of sympathy slowly hardening into a sullen enmity, which only awaited its hour to declare itself openly. Christ said to the unbelieving Jews, Ye have both seen and hated both me and my father. Judas was fast preparing to join that party. According to the narrative of St. Matthew, it was after this rebuke in the matter of Mary that Judas went into negotiations with those who were plotting the destruction of Jesus. He was a disappointed man. He had joined a party which he confidently expected to lead to triumph, success, land, and wealth. Instead of this, Jesus had lost every opportunity, lost the favorable hour of popularity, and concentrated on himself the hatred of the most powerful men of the nation, and now was talking only of defeat and rejection. The presence of Judas with the household was now that of a spy, watching his occasion but making no outward demonstration. He was in the little family circle that gathered in the upper room to eat the last Passover supper. His master bent at his feet and washed them, as he did those of the faithful ones, in that sacramental action when he showed them what he meant by true love. It was directly after this last act of affection that Jesus openly declared his knowledge of the meditated treachery, for he said, I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture must be fulfilled which saith, he that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Then with a deep sigh he adds in plain words, Verily, verily, I say unto you, One of you shall betray me. It is a most lovely comment on the goodness of heart of these simple men, that in so solemn a moment none of them thought of criminating the other. Each one said tremblingly, Lord, is it I? John, leaning down on his master's breast, inquired privately who it was, and Jesus gave him a private sign that it should be he to whom he gave a sop when he had dipped it. He dipped the sop and gave it to Judas. Then Judas, still keeping up the show of innocence, said, like the rest, Master, is it I? Jesus answered, Thou hast said it. It is said that Satan entered into him at this moment. All the smoldering elements of meanness, disgust, dislike of Jesus, his teaching, his spirit, and his mission were quickened by the presence of that invisible enemy who comes to the heart of man only when he is called by the congenial indulgence of wicked passions. Judas rose hastily, and our Lord added, That thou doest do quickly. He flung himself out and was gone. The miserable sum for which he sold his master, though inconsiderable in itself, was probably offered as first wages in a new service. His new masters were the heads of Israel. All avenues of patronage and power were in their hands, and the fortune that he could not make on the side of Jesus he might hope to gather on that of his enemies. He may have compounded with his conscience by believing that the miraculous power of our Lord was such that there was no danger of a fatal termination. In fact, that his being taken might force him to declare himself and bring on the triumphant moment of victory. 
He might possibly have said to himself that he was at any rate acting the part of a mediator in bringing matters to a crisis, and perhaps forcing a favorable result. For when he found that Jesus was indeed a victim, he was overwhelmed with remorse and despair. He threw the wretched money at the feet of his tempters and departed and hanged himself, and went, as we are told, to his own place. He went to the place for which he had fitted himself, who, living in the very bosom of Jesus, had grown more and more unlike him every day. He left Christ, driven by no force but his own wicked will. To the last the love of God pursued him. His master knelt and washed the very feet that were so soon to hasten to betray him. It was with a sorrowful spirit, a troubled heart, that Jesus said, Woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed! Good were it for that man if he had never been born! Without attempting to solve the mysteries of this deepest of all tragedies, we may yet see some of the uses and purposes of it in regard to ourselves. Our Lord was appointed to suffer in all respects as his brethren, and the suffering of bearing with antagonistic and uncongenial natures is one that the providence of God often imposes on us. There are often bound to us in the closest intimacy of social or family ties natures hard and uncongenial, with whom sympathy is impossible, and whose daily presence necessitates a constant conflict with an adverse influence. There are two enemies, open or secret, whose enmity we may feel yet cannot define. Our Lord, going before us in this hard way, showed us how we should walk. It will be appropriate to the solemn self-examination of the period of Lent to ask ourselves, is there any false friend or covert enemy whom we must learn to tolerate, to forbear with, to pity and forgive? Can we in silent offices of love wash their feet as our master washed the feet of Judas? And if we have no real enemies, are there any bound to us in the revelations of life whose habits and ways are annoying and distasteful to us? Can we bear with them in love? Can we avoid harsh judgments and harsh speech, and the making known to others of our annoyance? Could we, through storms of obloquy and evil report, keep calmly on in duty, unruffled in love, and commending ourselves to the judgment of God? The examination will probably teach us to feel the infinite distance between us and our divine ideal, and change censoriousness of others into prayer for ourselves. End of section 21